and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 39, recorded on February 4th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good morning to you. It's good to be connected again. And we have some big news. Red Hat is acquiring CoreOS. Yes, as they say, expanding their Kubernetes and containers leadership in a move that can only be described as buying up the competition, as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's also an acquire too, really, which I hate that term, but it, it is about bringing on people that have been working with Kubernetes and container technologies for years as their core focus, now under the Red Hat brand. Although it sounds like it's going to maintain its own individuality, at least for a while, more like CentOS. Well, CentOS is the first thing that sprung to mind. That was eating potentially some of their business away, and so they decided to control it by buying it. But they have decided to let that continue doing what it's doing. So I could see with CoreOS they would do that. And it it looks like they are more interested in the people making CoreOS and their expertise than the actual product itself. Because after all, it's free software. They could just take that code and do whatever they wanted with it as long as they comply with the license. This makes a lot of sense, this purchase. Looking at this, Red Hat needed to do something like this to really move forward. This is just an area of the server market that is exploding right now, and Red Hat, being one of the big names in that market, needed to have a complete full offering and a real solid expertise. The thing is, is some of the technologies that CoreOS have developed are already the umbrella of the Linux Foundation. So now Red Hat is acquiring technology or people behind the technology that is essentially an industry standard at this point. And they've really been able to bring the competitive edge to Docker and have really sort of kept Docker and Docker Swarm at bay. And for $250 million, this is a steal. Think about it like this. Facebook paid a billion dollars for Instagram. This CoreOS stuff, it's not just CoreOS. It's all of the underlying technologies that they've open sourced and that they're experts in. This stuff is crazy valuable. It's what businesses are built out of. Well, there's a reason why Red Hat are the biggest open source company. They're very sharp, aren't they? They keep making the right business decisions. And thankfully, they keep everything open source. So you can't really knock them, can you? This this is yet another very sharp business decision from them because they know how to stay relevant in the open source world. And now going forward, they're going to remain relevant, aren't they? My down the road thing I'll be watching for after this acquisition is what happens with Fedora Atomic fully. Do they alter that project to be more something in line with CoreOS? Do they share technologies more between them? Because there's a lot of overlap there. And so that'll be interesting to watch just, say, a year from now. Or does Fedora Atomic continue on its own and just keep getting better? I suspect the latter, because it's always a good idea to have competition even within your own company, isn't it? If you've kind of got this arms race going on and you know pushing the features forward on both of them, then it's probably more valuable ultimately than just getting rid of one and putting all your eggs in one basket. So the big technology that's getting talked about in this acquisition is Kubernetes. And the interesting story behind Kubernetes is that it was a Google Skunk Works project. This is Google-backed technology that was spun off onto its own. And now that's what Red Hat's really acquiring. It's a fascinating story. If you would like to know more, check out techsnap.systems slash 353. We have an easy intro into Kubernetes and a deeper context into why this technology is really important to Red Hat in the future Like Joe was just implying, it's a major purchase that's going to keep them relevant, and that episode explains why. Yeah, and there's also fun facts like their logo is Star Trek related, which you liked, no doubt. (laughs) Of course I did. (laughs) Now, there's something that everybody always loves. It's the soft spot we all have in our heart for LibreOffice. 
Why, Joe, I remember when it was OpenOffice and StarOffice before that. Now we have version 6.0 of LibreOffice. This is something that I struggle to get excited about, but I think we have to talk about it. It seems like a very solid release to me in terms of features, in terms of the, the file compatibility and just pushing it forward and trying to remain competitive with what Microsoft are doing with their Office suite. And for me, it's already full-featured enough, even really old versions of it. I don't need very much functionality, but you, you do have to stay relevant if you're going to compete with Microsoft. And if you're going to have government switching over and enterprises switching over, this is the kind of thing that they need to be doing. And so it, it all seems pretty positive to me. But as I said, I'm struggling to get too excited, I'm afraid. Fair enough. I, I pretty much feel the same way. There are a couple of features that jumped out at me. For those of us that are trying to reclaim their vertical space, there's a new tabbed compact view mode for Writer. And it's a streamlined version of the standard tab notebook bar that's more like the office ribbon, but it's it's less vertical and it's more like a browser tab. That's that's sort of nice for those of us that are currently on a kick like I am. But probably the biggest feature of LibreOffice 6.0 is the ability to export Writer documents to EPUB. Yeah, that could be a very useful feature in terms of e-readers, and EPUB is just such a standard now that it's, I'm surprised that they didn't have that before, to be honest. The other thing that they've baked in, which I'm really happy to see, is open PGP document signing and encryption support. Yeah, and even individual paragraphs can be signed, can't they? That is a really cool feature. That almost is worth the upgrade right there. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out, and hopefully the snap for it will be updated fairly soon. And that's something you've been immersed in all week, haven't you, at the Snapcraft Summit in Seattle? Yeah, it was downtown at the Hilton Seattle on 6th Avenue, and we drove down there every day from the studio. And I don't think we ever got home until before 10 p.m. a single night. Most nights, I think it was after 11 p.m. They work hard. And this is this is sort of like the New York event I went to six months ago, but much smaller in scale and, and in some ways more intense in its focus. So at the New York event, there was about, I don't know, 300 people there. There's probably about 50 people at this event. And I had a chance to talk with uh, developers from Slack, Microsoft Azure, Electron, the .NET project, the Skype project, TypeScript, PowerShell, uh, a Visual Studio Code developer, JetBrains employees, and uh, someone who's responsible for some packaging tasks at Plex, which was a fascinating discussion. It is way more complex than I ever thought possible. And they were there from about 9 a.m. till about 6 p.m. and usually a little bit later every single day. And then they would break off after that and go into individual groups and essentially just keep working but at a lower pace. And even when the Internet went out, they were so intent on getting work done that they leaned on the hotel staff to move them to an entirely different hotel, a competitor's hotel, so they could keep working at their with their internet connection. Um, and every time we walked in the room, it was very hushed. Everybody was very serious. They had one secret room where I'm not allowed to repeat what I heard in there or record anything, so I didn't spend a lot of time in there. I just went in there to kind of get a general impression of what it was like and document it, but I didn't really... Didn't end up like camping out there like I thought I might because what's the point if I can't repeat anything I heard? So we pulled people aside and chatted with them. And the main thing that we really took away is Canonical has come up with a way to solve a problem for them. So when they're going to Skype or they're going to Slack or they're potentially one day going to Plex, 
um, they're solving something that maybe they have a staff of people and all of these hacked together scripts to pull off. And so it's a real problem they're trying to solve. And the auto update mechanism of Snaps is extremely appealing to some of these companies. What I witnessed was a canonical advantage that I don't think flat packs or app images will ever have. And that is the fact that there are administrative personnel in Canonical's offices who can call administrative personnel at Plex's office and Microsoft's office, and the administrative personnel can coordinate scheduling for resources below them. And then those companies send their resources to an agreed-upon location, and their resources do the work that they've been tasked to do. That's the one advantage I feel that a bureaucracy can bring to open source development is that when it gets to the layer where it has to be business to business, they can facilitate that communication. They can tell them, hey, we have a problem to solve. They can afford to pay staff members to advocate something to Microsoft, to Slack, and they can afford to, say, pay them for a year to campaign Slack before it actually bears any fruit. I'm not trying to take away from flat packs or app images. Those are great solutions. They have their markets. I'm just trying to illustrate where I think Snaps might have a competitive advantage, and they're going to carve out a certain type of applications that perhaps the other packaging formats won't. It's interesting that the big headline from it really was this Skype snap, that I think they had the release of that embargo, didn't they, until this uh, summit. Mm -hmm. And also we've had the Slack snap as well recently. But... If you look on insights.ubuntu.com at the posts about this event, they are filed under IoT rather than desktop. And that is where I thought they were really focusing this Snap stuff because that's where it's profitable on digital signage and edge devices, as Shotworth calls them. So I was quite surprised that there was such a heavy desktop focus at this event. That's a good observation. I wonder if it's filed under IoT on their website because it's sort of from the click packages era, which was very much focused on IoT. Maybe, maybe, but I know a lot of Snap stuff is for IoT. Mm -hmm. So maybe they've just got that sorted at this stage and now they're moving into the desktop more. Well, or, you know, having a having a big name, use your package formats, even if it's a desktop application, it probably still gets your foot in the door when you're trying to talk to QNAP about how they ship their updates. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, If you've got a huge name like Skype on board, then that's got to help in those meetings, isn't it? The other thing that they're very cleverly doing is they're working with the tool builders at the tool level, so say Electron Builder or um, you know, insert whatever application, maybe it's GNOME Builder. Uh, when the developer hits export, so in the case of Electron Builder, when they go to export a Windows, Mac, and Linux version of an Electron app, they now have an option when they put in one additional export command to also just export from Electron Builder right to a Snap package. It's early days, but this is the level they're thinking at, is work at the tool levels, so that way when the developers are hitting their targets, it's just baked right in, they can export right to Snap. I can't say I'm really surprised at these huge names coming on board with Snap, because Shotworth has thrown a lot of investment behind it, not just with these events in New York and Seattle, but a lot of developer resources and community management stuff, they're all in on Snaps at this point, and they have been for a while, and now it's starting to actually work and, and produce results for them. So the real question is, who's going to be next? Um, I suspect more Microsoft stuff went on in that secret room. 
Joe, I think that's probably an accurate suspicion. And uh, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that uh, Skype snap has some improvements in the near-term future that us Linux users are going to extremely appreciate. And it might just make it the de facto way most of us install Skype in the future. DigitalOcean.com. Go over there, create your account, and then use our promo code, here's the thing. It's all one word, smash it together and get a promo code of $10. Then you can spin up a $5 dropleter, any of their other rigs, and try it out for free. You get a $10 credit, no credit card required. It just goes right to your account, and you can spin up that $5 dropleter. Take a look at all of the different options. They have ready-to-deploy pre-built applications. You want to go give NextCloud a try like we did a few weeks ago? You can deploy it all with a single click on DigitalOcean. Or you can build just a base system. Everything's SSD-backed. All of the systems have SSD drives. And now they have serious compute systems as well. They have new optimized compute workloads. They have high memory systems, expandable, easy-to-use storage. And they've just revamped their pricing so it's a better deal than ever. My favorite DigitalOcean droplet is just three cents an hour. You get four gigs of RAM, two virtual CPUs, and 80 gigabytes of SSD, beautiful fast storage. And DigitalOcean has built-in monitoring, network-level firewalls so the dirty packets never even hit your machines, and so many great ready-to-go applications at a single click. And coming soon, new features like per-second billing and lots of other cool stuff. Predictable pay-as-you-go pricing, an elegant API, and a straightforward dashboard. DigitalOcean.com, promo code, here's the thing. Okay, quick catch-up from last week. We talked about testing Plasma Mobile. Well, part two of that series of blog posts has been posted now. And it's more about testing it on actual mobile hardware. The first one was about testing it on virtual machines and x86 machines, but now this is about how to actually get it on something that it should be running on. And there are a few ways to do it with um, post-market OS and Halium and a couple of devices that they've got actual images pre-built for. So you've got no excuse now. You've got to try out Plasma Mobile and see how much potential it has. I love that they have an image for the Nexus 7 2013. I have a soft spot for that tablet. If I still had that around, that feels like it would be perfect size for Plasma Mobile. Yeah, if someone wanted to get into custom ROMs and stuff like that, that is the one device I would recommend because there are just so many ROMs for it, and it's also a great tablet. Once you stick Lineage on it, it's still, even though it's, what, five years old at this point, it's still a really great tablet. So, um, yeah, you should get hold of one. You could probably get one off Craigslist for like 50 bucks or something. Yeah, you know, it's it might almost be worth it with these kinds of things. I see there's another approach, too, if you have the Nexus 5 or 5X. 5X is still a pretty decent phone, too, for these alternative images. It's, it's the Helium-based approach, I, I, I believe. But if you got a 5X, give that a shot, too. Yeah, and you'll see how far Plasma Mobile has come along. As I said last week, it's not ready yet, but it's certainly getting there. Well, speaking of getting there and updates, Purism has another update on their road to the Librem 5, and they talk a little in this post about PureOS and GNOME and KDE support. Yeah, that PR train keeps on chugging, eh? We're talking about it once again. Yeah, this is probably the post I wish they hadn't made, because it was the red flag to me that is is really sort of concerning. They expand more, Todd does in this post, Todd, the CEO of Purism, he expands more in this post about how they'll be integrating both GNOME and KDE. Of course, in his parlance, he says partnered because that's how everybody phrases it. And he says that users that use PureOS on the Librem 5 will get a choice of the GNOME environment or the KDE Plasma environment. 
And of course, that doesn't mean just the option of GNOME or Plasma Desktop on the Librem 5 or whatever mobile versions they are at that point. It also means an entire stack of Qt, an entire stack of GTK. Now, I have to agree with you, I think, on this one, because, okay, choice is always good, and offering people those two choices on the surface of things seems great. Okay, well, I prefer Plasma Mobile, I prefer GNOME, whatever. But when this was funded, we talked about how the margins on this were very small. They don't have a lot of money in relative terms. They've only got a couple of million dollars to play with here, which is not much when you're developing an operating system from scratch. And for me, just pick something and stick with it. Don't have all these choices because it's not just GNOME and KDE either. There's even talk of UbiPorts or Ubuntu Touch being available for it, which is surely a terrible idea to have three potential avenues to go down. You, you've just got to pick one and stick with it and make it really good. And once it comes out and is good and all the rest of it, facilitate people porting other stuff to it and make it so that you can install other things on it. And that's the whole point of it being free and open. Yeah, this is a red flag. And it, it does concern me because if they blow this, the, the dream may die with them. No one's really going to take this seriously. And the red flags are very obvious at this point. In my mind, this may actually just spell the doom of the project because it, uh, it betrays um, a problem with Todd himself, I believe. You see, I think Todd Weaver can't see past his own vision, and he believes that he can bridge the gap between his incredible pure OS that a few thousand people are using to the mobile operating system. And so that when they talk about it in this post, they talk about their investment in GNOME so far and that user base and how that user base is going to be able to run their applications on their phone. That user base doesn't matter. If you, if you have less than 300,000 active users on your distribution, you're not even in the top 10. You're maybe, maybe, maybe in the top 10. You're definitely not in the top five. So these, this precious investment of yours is meaningless. It, those users will mean nothing if the Librem 5 is successful, but you are strapping an anchor to the Librem 5 because of this vision of yours and this investment that you've made in your PureOS GNOME users which don't make any sense because the fundamental issue with the phone is that it is not a desktop. It's not an x86 computer with 512 gigs of storage and 32 gigabytes of RAM. It is a confined, limited environment. And the issue with offering both a Plasma stack and a GNOME stack on your phone is that you muddy the story for developers. They need it really clear and simple. They need... This is how you write the application. This is the toolkit you use. These are the pre-made widgets that you use. This is how you package that application. This is where you ship the application to the end users. We have living proof of this in elementary OS. They're not the largest distribution in the pond, and yet they've seen over 70 new applications submitted to their little app center this year alone because they have a great story for developers. They have widgets and toolkits that are clear and easy to use. They have good documentation. It's a singular story. They're not telling them to write cute apps and GTK apps and use their own custom compositor or use something that was built by the KWIN project. And that's just issue number one. Issue number two is you already have a snowball's chance in hell of this thing being successful to begin with. Everybody knows that. And so the more you split your attention, your company's focus, and your developer's focus, the more technical debt that you're taking on, the closer and closer you inch the project to doom. And 
Fundamentally, another issue is, is the GNOME developers aren't all that interested upstream. The Plasma Mobile developers have been interested for years, and they're shipping it, as we just explained, on physical hardware right now for testing. The GNOME developers have kind of given up on mobile. They're not all that interested, and they have fundamental technical issues with the way GNOME Shell's built that you would have to overcome to make it work on your phone. And that's just right here off the top of my head. Well, overcoming those issues by maybe writing your own Wayland compositor, right. which purism are now talking about. Yes. It's, it just seems madness to me, that. Yeah, it's really unfortunate, because they're going to kill the dream here. I really, or they're going to create a meme that the open source community can never ship a mobile operating system. And what's frustrating is it feels like Todd, and this is why I say Todd Weaver can't see past his own vision here, is he hasn't taken any lessons from any of the previous open source projects that have taken a shot at this. It's like free R&D, at his company, and he's just ignoring this comp- this, all this R&D research for years at his company. Symbian, OpenMoco, Memo, Neo9000, Moblin, Limo, Bada, WebOS, Luna OS, Migo, Tizen, Nemo Mobile, Sailfish OS, Asteroid, Yala, Zipper, Ubuntu Touch, KDE Plasma Mobile, Gnome for Mobile, Replicant, CyanogenMod, Firefox OS. I could go on and on. These are all projects that have failed to reach mass adoption, and some of them have failed completely, and most of them actually, have failed completely outright because they couldn't see past their own visions. You know, this whole project was about producing a phone that runs completely free software and doesn't require blobs to run, right? And they seem to have the hardware sorted on that, and they're doing some testing and stuff, so that's all well and good, I think. That's not that difficult once you get the system on a chip sorted. And so it occurs to me, why don't they just take Lineage and use that and bundle F-Droid with it? Right. And then you've got a completely blobless yeah. um, Lineage phone, which would solve the problem. No, I think there's some. I think within the company there's people who are anti-Android, and, and more power to them, that's all good. This is what their customer base will do. If they still manage to actually ship the hardware, nobody's going to buy that phone and want to run some half-breed OS, they're just going to reflash it to a usable operating system designed for mobile, and then they probably won't get to take advantage of their physical kill switches because Android hasn't been built to just lose its baseband and its Wi-Fi chipset all of a sudden. So that'll probably be something that only pure OS can do that most of the customer base likely won't take advantage of because they won't be running it. Yeah, well, I was speaking to a developer from UbiPorts about it, and he said to me that it's not as easy as you'd think, just because GNU slash Linux will run on it, it doesn't necessarily mean that Android will. And I made the point to him, well, yeah, but porting Android to it is surely easier and cheaper than writing an entire operating system from scratch, which is what they're looking to do. Yeah, And I can see this anti-Android stuff, but there's no reason to be anti-Android if you're running Lineage, which is totally free software, apart from the blobs that you normally need, which you won't need in this case. So there's no reason why you couldn't have a totally free replicant-style Android distribution. I think it's about getting the blessing of the Free Software Foundation, quite honestly. That, I think, they hope to be their competitive advantage of this phone. Yeah, but isn't Replicant blessed by the FSF? Oh, I guess Replicant is. Yeah, I think they could do Replicant. Yeah, I think they could do Replicant. Well, there you go. Yeah, so... Yeah, this is, again, going back to not seeing past the vision here. The, the, to me, the idea that they're going to ship Plasma and GNOME and that they're going to invest equally in both of them and bring GNOME... Uh, even getting GNOME to where Plasma Mobile now is is probably more work than somebody who's also trying to build a phone at the same time should take on. Yeah. The fact that they can't see this is, is going to be noticed by the community. Their average customer is a little more savvy than the person that's walking into a mobile store and getting an Android phone for free. 
we will see these red flags. This will not go unnoticed. I don't know, man. I think that a lot of the people who have backed this and spent their money, they, they've got so much hope in this that maybe they will see past these red flags yeah. and hope will keep burning inside. That is why I'm worried they're going to kill a certain kind of dream when this thing blows up in their face. Mm, well, we'll still have UB ports after that. And I think that they've got some big things happening this year with the Anbox stuff and Android app support. And I think that if they can get their marketing together and, and get the technical details of it all worked out, I think that UB ports is going to be really one to watch and potentially uh, will end up on this Purism phone. Uh, they might just have to, if they want to ship it in early 2019, then they might just have to abandon what they're doing and just stick you reports on it. Hmm. Well, I hope one feature that remains is calls being placed over Matrix. I love Matrix. I like to think of it as communications infrastructure. Yeah, well, it's looking pretty good for them. They've had an investment of $5 million this week from Status. Uh, Ethereum-based company, right? Isn't Stasis, aren't they like an Ethereum-based platform with chat and all that kind of... I don't know. I didn't see this coming, I guess. Yeah, it seems like they'd be almost a competitor, really. But, well, Matrix is free software. It's getting a lot of money thrown at it. It's got to be good news, isn't it? Yeah, in fact, one of the things they plan to do, they hope to do in the future, is build a bridge from Matrix to the Status Ethereum chat system. So that kind of makes sense. And Status, at the same time, also invested in Rocket.im on the same day. Same amount of money. And Rocket.im rides on top of Matrix. It's sort of like a Slack competitor. And so Status.im has invested in both Matrix and the most popular front end, Rocket.im. Yeah, that blockchain VC money is going to a good home here, at least. Speaking of crypto funds going to a good home... The Free Software Foundation just got a big Bitcoin donation. Yeah, which was a million dollars worth, but now it's probably worth about 50 cents or something, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It hurts. It hurts, Joe. As we record right now, uh, Bitcoin has just broken below $8,000. It's down $1,000 today. It's at $7,983. Now, I I would I always base my floors on what I feel like the gut of the Bitcoin community is, and I told you I think two days ago I feel like the floor is seven thousand cold. We'll see if I'm right about that. I do have a theory on what's going on now. Like I've sat back and watched it for a little bit, and I think what we're seeing is the result of a pump and dump in altcoins. People were using altcoins to buy Bitcoin and back and forth. And that fizzled out, and now you're seeing a collapse in the Bitcoin price. Now, this is, um, as of right now, I think it's like a, around a 65% correction from the last three months. So it's gone up like 500%, and now we're seeing a 65% correction. So we're about at mid to early November prices right now. Yeah, it's. I've, I've given up on trying to predict where it's going to go. I just watch it and... You know, my few hundred quid's worth <laughs> goes up and down, and I just have to be zen about it, really. Oh, yeah. I, I've never invested too much in it. But I wonder to what extent, because it's not just Bitcoin that's crashing and tanking. It's the other cryptocurrencies, the altcoins, as you say. Mm-hmm. And I wonder to what extent that is driven not by this stuff in India and Facebook banning adverts for cryptocurrencies. I wonder how much of it is being driven by deep fakes because there's a lot of people, a lot of nerdy people who've probably were mining altcoins before 
who are now using their graphics cards to make these deep fakes, which are not necessarily celebrity things. Some of them are just fun things like Nicolas Cage or whatever. It's it kind of the the cryptocurrencies was something that a lot of people like you got into just for the fun of it, wasn't it? Just for something to do. You had the hardware, so why not? And now people are starting to do these. I don't think that that's massively affected the price of Bitcoin, but it's it's interesting to think about that maybe people are starting to move on to other things that need powerful graphics cards. Yeah, I also think people are moving on to some altcoins that are uh, more approachable by people with more common hardware, and that could be playing a bit of a role. It's usually several things that really cause large price manipulations, including people intentionally manipulating the price at the same time. So here's how I put the whole cryptocurrency market into perspective is I look at their market caps and it's it's kind of astonishing, really. It starts out pretty strong, Bitcoin's way up there, then Ethereum comes in as like the number two with with the largest market cap. And right now Ethereum is $800 around there. It's around $813 for Ethereum. Number three in market cap is Ripple and it's worth – 80 cents right now. You go from $800 to 80 cents. Now, there's other outliers in there like NEO and Bitcoin Cash and a few others, but it's really only the two top cryptocurrencies that are really worth anything in terms of the coin dollar. After that, it drops off dramatic. Now, there's still like millions of dollars of market value in some of these coins, but they're being used at lower levels as more like back-end currencies. Yeah, it's interesting times. But we were supposed to be talking about the Free Software Foundation, and it's good to see that they've got this injection. I don't know if they sold it or whether they're holding, um, because it could end up being worth a lot more for them, potentially, if, if they do hold and leave it a year or so, if my original prediction was right that it's going to be worth 100000 that's looking very unlikely at this point, but you never know. Yeah, that would be quite the rally. Now, they say that this is a record-breaking charitable contribution of 91.45 bitcoins from the Pineapple Fund, which at the time, like Joe said, was a million. I don't know. They don't actually say what they did with it. <laughs> but they feel vindicated, I think. In this post, I think they see this as a real testament to the importance of the Free Software Foundation and free software in general. And they say they're honored to receive this generous donation from the Pineapple Fund. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, because the Pineapple Fund has donated to a lot of really good causes. So it's good to see that free software is part of it because, after all, Bitcoin itself is free software, isn't it? So it's kind of, uh, it feels fitting. Well, there's always a lot happening every single week in the world of open source and Linux. So get every single episode at linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And please consider supporting the entire network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next week. See you later.